What's up, Upright Armada? It's Matthew from Upright Health. Today, we're going to be talking about why I don't trust doctors. Now, I want to make clear that I'm not saying doctors themselves have bad intentions. I'm not saying that doctors are bad people. And I'm not saying that you should never see a doctor if you have a medical issue. In fact, there are certain issues that I think I absolutely trust doctors for. For example, if I've been shot, if I have broken a bone, if I have been in a car accident, if I have had some major traumatic injury, I most definitely trust my life and entrust my life in the hand, into the hands of a doctor. That said, I think it's really important for people to understand that a healthy dose of skepticism for what doctors say about chronic health conditions is really necessary. Some amount of skepticism is healthy and you really should have that kind of skepticism filtering what you hear from doctors. And that's not because of bad intentions. That's not because of anything nefarious. It's just because Doctors are still human, and the body of medical knowledge has some issues. So I want there's a number I want to cover a number of stories today, but I may not have time for all of them. So I want to first start with the personal story for me, where my own skepticism and my own um, lack of trust in doctors. Um, was first planted and and why it drives a lot of what I say about how the human body works and how it's driven my own explorations in fixing my own body. So what happened with me was basically I had injuries, um, sports injuries from uh, playing around in the waves, not surfing yet as a kid. I got hit by a wave, hurt my back. Uh, I was told to take Vicodin to take the edge off the pain, and it didn't really. Um, and then for a couple of years, I just had a bad back. Then I got hurt playing hockey, pulled my groin, snowboarding hurt my shoulder, kept getting told to rest to, to get things better, and that never helped, right? And it eventually got to the point where I was taking painkillers, hurt my stomach with so many painkillers. And then after many years of resting and just sitting at my computer writing college papers, my hands and wrists were hurting, and then my knee was hurting. And after three years of just rest, the doctor I saw in Germany at that time took an MRI and said, hey, you know what, your knee hurts because you're using it too much. And looking back at it all it was just like this whole long journey of frustration. I rested and nothing got better. And after three years of rest, the doctor said, you're still using your knee too much. And, and I told him like, hey man, uh, I've been resting. And I'm, I think I was 22 at the time, right? I've been resting, why is my knee hurt? And he said, well, you know, as you get older, these things wear out. And, and that was like the big snap moment for me of like, okay, you clearly don't know what you're talking about. If, if you think that at 22 my knee is worn out, then we have a major issue. And if every doctor I see in the United States or in Germany or whatever uh, 
tells me I just need to rest more, this doesn't work. Even acupuncturists were telling me I just had to rest more. Massage therapists were telling me I just had to rest more. Everyone was telling me I had to rest more and it wasn't making anything better. So I was getting this from a lot of authority figures and the authority advice wasn't working. And, you know, just, just to think about this even more deeply, I was given Vicodin, I was prescribed Vicodin when I was 16 years old in high school. And I remember actually one of my classmates told me he'd be willing to buy some of my Vicodin from me if I didn't want it because I, I really didn't like taking it. And I was mentioning how weird it made me feel. And this one classmate actually said like, oh, would you consider selling it? And, you know, at the time, this this was when um, opioids were not known to be a problem. And this, I think, is like a key thing to think about is my doctor, my family doctor, believed at the time, this was, I believe, the mid-90s, believed at the time, oh, sorry, it would be the late 90s, he said, he believed that giving me an opiate like Vicodin for my back pain was a good thing to do because all of the marketing material and education, quote-unquote, material that he was given about these drugs said that these were non-addictive and highly effective at treating pain. Now we have the luxury of 20 years of experience and we see that these drugs are totally not the right thing, uh, actually increase people's pain by creating uh, increasing tolerance to the drug and then creating situations where taking away the drug creates more pain, right? So we've learned with experience that that well-intentioned good advice from my family doctor was actually horrible advice and probably could have led to me becoming addicted to Vicodin if I had actually enjoyed the sensation. So that was one of the major things um, that really turned me off to medical advice was seeing this uh, total uselessness of advice. And then with hindsight now, seeing how dangerous some of the advice was despite the best of intentions. And also, that was the height of knowledge. That was state-of-the-art knowledge about painkillers at the time. And the advice was clearly bad. But we only know that now with hindsight. So that's one of the things that drives me in in my uh, explorations with my own body. It's understanding that doctors can get it horribly wrong and consistently seem to for reasons that I talk about in um, some other blog posts that I've written and and I'll try to link to those in the show notes. Uh, But basically, you get a lot of bad information that masquerades as truth, right? Uh, Another many episodes have shown up over the years um, that have made me question the reality, quote unquote, that gets fed to me by medical practitioners. Another story was with my, um, my, when my wife was pregnant, we had um, a little baby boy brewing inside her, and the pediatrician was talking with us about the hepatitis B vaccine. Uh, Hepatitis B vaccine is obviously a vaccine to prevent the transmission and the uh, acquisition of the disease, and... um, it's normally at the hospital that we were going to be um, having our son. It's normally given right at birth. Uh, immediately after they, the baby pops out, you hit him with the, the needle for a couple of things, but one of the things would be hepatitis B vaccine. And so I 
being somewhat skeptical, just wanted to look to see, okay, what, like, hepatitis B, what is that? What are the real risks involved? What's going on with that? And, uh, you know, my bias is just to, like, hey, can we just, like, not stick him with a needle right away? Obviously, if there is a threat to his life and health, fine, let's do it. But if it's not really that urgent, then do we have to do it right now? And so I saw, okay, hepatitis B is normally... Uh, transmitted through blood transfusions, sexual contact, drug use, intravenous drug use. And I thought, well, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be a problem because neither my wife nor I um, are doing intravenous drugs. Neither of us have uh, especially, neither of us have uh, promiscuous sexual lives, especially not at that time. And, um, you know, we're just trying to make sure my wife feels okay while she's trying to... Um, deal with the third trimester and um you know there, there were just no risk factors for hepatitis b right and so the the pediatrician was saying you know oh you should really get the hepatitis b vaccine right away and and i said like well i've been looking at this and it doesn't seem like it's so urgent right we have like no risk factors here for transmission of hepatitis b right at birth right like what what's the what's going to happen can we just wait for the next week or whatever and do it the next week because um, it doesn't seem like in that first week of his life he's going to be out having sex and doing drugs and the pediatrician said well the hepatitis b virus can be transmitted from mother to baby and i said well but she doesn't have hepatitis b right and like we've tested that right so she she doesn't have it right so the pediatrician said well you know one third of all asian sorry one third of all asian americans have hepatitis b and i was like that's basically impossible <laughs> right so i was like that uh okay that's that seems not right but we've tested my wife and she doesn't have it so we're not gonna do the vaccine right when he's born and she was obviously disapproving and that conversation ended awkwardly so of course i then went to do some research on my own and i went on the internet to figure out where this outrageous number was coming from because nobody in my extended family that I was aware of had hepatitis B and these numbers that this pediatrician was was claiming were true were they just meant that I must know multiple people dozens of people with hepatitis and I knew nobody and so what I found to keep the story short is that there were some papers that claimed that a billion people or something some crazy number i don't know if i remember it exactly correct but it was some crazy number of people had hepatitis and that it was like one out of every three asians in the world had hepatitis and it then linked off via footnote a little citation um, to back up this claim and then when i clicked into that footnote that footnote never said anything like that that footnote said something like you know it's a widespread uh, viral infection and 
I think it had said something like there were 300 million people in the world or 300 million active cases of hepatitis B infection. And that made it a very grave and dangerous disease. But 300 million out of a population of 7 billion is not one out of three Asians. I, I, don't, even, I don't even know how you come up with one out of three Asians with that number since, you know, in China and India alone, you already have several billion people. But it, anyway, it's not the point. The point is that this one out of three Asian Americans has hepatitis B somehow was derived out of this crazy falsehood that was just being echoed. And a pediatrician who had all the trappings of expertise and knowledge, authority, and also good intention was literally spoon feeding me uh, an unintentional falsehood. And that's this was in a a reputable hospital. This is not like I was in some sort of crazy wacko town. This was in a Bay Area hospital with a respected, respectable reputation. So <laughs> that was one of those things during childbirth that just blew my mind that like, okay, there's a lot of misinformation just circulating regularly through the medical community. And Added on top of that, I realized there was this whole thing about how a baby sleeps, which if you're if you've been a parent in the last, I think, 20 years, you've probably encountered this. Uh, there's been this whole thing about uh, babies having to sleep face up in order to reduce the risk of suffocation while sleeping. And. This was really funny because uh, obviously infant death is not funny. There's nothing, nothing funny about a baby dying. I I lose sleep some nights just thinking about what it would be like for my own child to die at any point. And um, so obviously I don't, I understand that we all wish to protect the lives of babies. The whole thing that circulates right now about babies sleeping face up to prevent them from dying, I think is very, 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 very well-intentioned. Extremely well-intentioned. It just seems like there's a, a a dogmatism around it that is not backed by data, not backed by science. And it was really curious to come across this because I noticed with our son, as a baby, if he slept face up, he would just wake up constantly and like throw up a little bit. I don't know if you call it acid reflux or whatever, but he would just not sleep well face up. And so one night I was on duty and I had him sleep face down on the couch, on a very firm couch so that he had nothing that could suffocate him. He could not sink down and have his breath blocked. And I sat next to to him. I, I sat on the floor so I could just watch him sleep face down with his head turned to the side so he could breathe. And I kept the dim light on and I watched him and I watched him and I watched him and I watched him sleep so well for hours and hours and hours. And it was incredible. And I realized, hey, 
sleeping down for him seems to work a lot better than sleeping face up. What What is going on here? And then I started talking to moms, moms who had been moms years before, moms who had been moms decades before. I talked to my own mom about uh, sleeping habits for kids. And this curious thing arose because when I talked to um, parent to, to mothers who had been mothers decades ago, uh, they were telling me something very different from what recent mothers were telling me. So recent mothers were all being told, you have to have this baby sleep face up. Babies must sleep face up. If they don't sleep face up, they're going to die. Basically, if they sleep face up, your baby's going to die. You're probably committing murder by having your baby sleep face down, right? If baby's sleeping face down, murder, dead baby. And when I related this information to mom, to my own mom and to moms of my mother's generation, they said, what? When we were giving birth, we were told we had to make the baby sleep face down. Otherwise it was bad for the baby. Um, and I, I just had to laugh at this. It was just like, really? So for all the time leading up to, I think it's roughly in the eighties, sometime in the eighties, doctors were adamant, adamant that the baby had to sleep face down. And if you didn't make the baby sleep face down, you're a bad parent. And then sometime it flipped and it's like, oh, no, no, no. If you keep the baby sleeping face down, you're a murderer. And you need to make sure that baby sleeps face up. I even heard this story um, from somebody who told me, um, she, I, I don't remember if it's her friend, friend's baby or whatever, but basically the story goes, there was a, um, a uh, mother was watching um, a nurse handle some babies in the nursery at the hospital. And um, she noticed that the nurse would go over to babies that were crying and then turn them face down in their little cribs and then they would quiet down and fall asleep. And so the mom asked this nurse, like, aren't you supposed to make the baby sleep face up? And the nurse said, yeah, that's what they say, but they never sleep well that way. So we just put them face down when we actually want them to sleep. And, you know, this is just one more of those little uh, pieces of information was just like, well, is the is the dogma really accurate? Is the as well intentioned as some of the dogma may be, is it actually a, an accurate reflection and a useful strategy in real life? And and this this was just another instance where maybe it's not. And um, then I was reading a book. I don't remember the name of the book. It's a, one of these parenting books that kind of looks at medical advice with skepticism and it basically said like, Hey, did you know, basically, did you notice that in the last 10 to 20 years, ever since the advent of the face up sleeping, there's been a weird, inexplicable, <laughs> coincidental issue crop up in which the backs of babies' heads seem to be flat. And there has been a huge increase in the prescription of these little baby skull head shaping foam helmets 
which I had seen. I had seen on a bunch of little kids when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. I started noticing those pop up. Um, I saw my nephew's friend had one and I just noticed kids occasionally I'd see them being carted around and they'd be wearing these little foam helmets. And I was like, what, what, what is the helmet for? Right. And these helmets were basically to try to reshape the flat back of the skull because the heads were getting flattened because the babies were never allowed to sleep in any position besides face up. So the constant face up position was flattening the back of the head. And so you just look at these kinds of instances where dogma is just not backed up by reality and it makes you question what you're being told. And that's what's made me really, really severely question what I'm being told. And, you know, I think people can get into the mindset of like, well, there's these conspiracies, whatever. And I don't even think, you don't even have to believe in conspiracies. You don't have to believe that there are nefarious forces at work, greed, whatever it is. All you have to realize is that I think all of us are searching for good, simple answers. And pretty much all of us have pretty good intentions. I think doctors especially really do have good intentions. And they're also tired. (laughs) I mean, I have friends who are doctors. They're tired. They don't always have the time. They're human beings. They've got families. They've got stuff to do. They are assuming that somebody further up the chain a lot of times is doing the homework and doing the research to make sure that the information that trickles down is accurate. And the reality is that information is not always accurate. That information is not always vetted. That information is not always useful. And it's not, sometimes it's not anywhere in the ballpark of being correct. So I always find it, um, I always find it, useful to be a little skeptical even when and especially when somebody like a doctor any authority figure tells me that something is unquestionably true because if there's anything you see over the course of history especially in medical history it's that what you think is indisputably unquestionably true is probably going to turn out to be false within about 50 years. And that's a perspective I think a lot of just regular human beings need to be uh, tuned into. Because, you know, West modern Western medicine does not have um, a lengthy, lengthy track record of being perfectly right <laughs> about everything. In fact, if we do an honest assessment, it is a system that's geared towards trying to figure out what's right, which is fantastic, and constantly figuring out that what we thought was right was wrong. That's really, that, that's sort of the whole, that's, that's even modern science, right? That's everything that we do as humans is just trying to learn how, we, how we've been doing things wrong, right? And I think the deep, the, maybe the better, more fundamental search is to like figure out how we can what simple things we've been doing right, what they are, and how we can make sure we hang on to those simple, easy things 
in the face of all of this technological upheaval. One final tidbit that I think is that also informs my mistrust of medical authority um, involves drugs. And there was one drug in, in particular that my neighbor was telling me about. There's this drug called thalidomide. And um, it was a drug that uh, a friend of hers, while she was pregnant, was prescribed to help with anxiety. And they were told, you know what, it's totally fine. Don't worry, you're pregnant, it's fine. This drug is safe, totally fine. It'll help you with anxiety, no problem. And then she gave birth and her child had some very severe de birth defects and the uh, actually the, the birth defect problem was widespread and led to a lot of babies being born with deformities and the drug was eventually pulled. And this is one of those examples of, again, good intentions, trust that somebody higher up is doing their homework and making sure something is safe and all of that failing with dramatic and terrible consequences. It's not enough to me to hear from an authority figure that something is good. To me, it's extremely important to be able to verify, to be able to vet, to be able to look at the data, to look at the information, and to look at it with skepticism and say, what are the costs of this information being wrong? And what are the upsides if this information is right? What do I want to believe? What are my biases here? What are the payoffs for me? And what is the likelihood that the conclusions that I'm coming to are right or wrong? And what's the likelihood that the conclusions that the authorities are giving me are right or wrong? So the whole point of this is just to point out that we're not, you know, when we're, when we're standing in front of doctors, when we're standing in front of any authority figure, it's important not to just place all faith and just say, okay, whatever they say has got to be true. I've heard so many things from my own personal doctors, my own personal health professionals, right? Even massage therapists, even acupuncturists, even um, naturopaths. I've heard them say things that just didn't pass the sniff test. And making sure I asked the right questions and did follow-up research was hugely important to me to navigate my own health, my own body. And the more I do that, the more confident I am that I can take care of my body as I get older. That doesn't mean that I'm always on the right track. Sometimes I totally get things wrong and I get frustrated. You know, I have to do a lot of exploring and whatever. But at least I know that I'm that the world makes sense. And I'm not stuck on paths that somebody laid out for me just because they had the right initials behind their name. If there's anything that I think is useful, it's that you know, the right initials, the right certifications, the right whatever, don't guarantee that you're right. And uh, that's one of, the, one of the reasons why I 
like I basically just don't trust it. Like the more initials you have, the less trusting I am of you. But that's a, that's maybe a story for another day. So anyway, key takeaways today, trust, but verify, right? Doctors are humans. They make mistakes. Institutions make mistakes. It's important to recognize that, be honest about that. Don't pretend that that's not an issue, uh, especially when you're dealing with your own health. You've got to be your own advocate. You've got to watch out. You've got to treat yourself well. You've got to look at your upsides and downsides. Try to take a global perspective. Try to take a, a personal, individual perspective. Try to see the bigger picture and the smaller picture for yourself. And then try stuff, right? When you're dealing with any sort of issue, chronic pain, whatever, you got to be independent-minded enough to, to help yourself. And also, hey, know when it's time to hand your trust to somebody else. There's no way I'm going to treat myself for a gunshot wound or, you know, going to try to fix a shattered femur. I'm definitely going to go see a doctor. But, you know, if I'm going to try to heal my hip pain, my knee pain, my wrist pain, my shoulder pain, my neck pain. That is most definitely going to be my responsibility and I'm not trusting anybody with a knife to try to fix that for me. All right, guys, I uh, went a little longer than I intended. Uh, so I'm gonna wrap it up today. If you are looking for resources to help you understand all this stuff, check out the show notes, uprighthealth.com. Find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash C slash Upright Health. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and head into the show notes. You'll find a link for a PayPal donation page. I really appreciate it. And as always, I hope you remember that pain sucks. Life shouldn't.